Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. Today's episode of the Tourpreneur podcast is kindly sponsored by Checkfront, the booking platform trusted by over 5,000 tour and activity operators around the world. This month, Checkfront is offering an exclusive 90-day free trial for tourpreneurs. Find out more at checkfront.com forward slash tourpreneur. Welcome to the Tourpreneur Podcast. Travel industry veteran Shane Whaley will take you on a journey with fellow tourpreneurs, sharing their tips, ideas, insights, and success stories to inspire you to make your tour business the best it can be. And now, here is your host, Shane Whaley. And welcome to episode 115 of Tourpreneur. This is where we flatten the learning curve for tour operators around the world. Today, we travel to Juneau, Alaska to learn more about Miji Moore and Juneau Food Tours. Welcome to Tourpreneur, Miji. Hi, thank you so much. It's really great to be with you today. <laughs> Absolutely. So this episode of Tourpreneur is a little bit different because for the first time, we're actually recording in audio and video format. And that's because we're always going to be a podcast but quite a few of our listeners said, hey, I'm not commuting anymore, obviously. I'm not waiting for my uh, party of tour gu- uh, guests to come on to my tour. I'm not my meeting place. So, you know, I don't mind watching video as well now. So I thought, okay, well, let's, we'll try both. And this is something that we've been talking about during the, the lockdown is trying new technologies and things that you like. You know, I'm a podcast guy. I'm not crazy on video. I'll be <laughs> honest with you. But, you know, you have to try new things, right, in our businesses. So you can find the video version of today's interview at tourpreneur.com forward slash YouTube. That will take us to our channel. Please hit the subscribe button and uh, that will help us get the word out to other tour operators. Right. We've got that out of the way. Let's find out about Juno Food Tours. And also we're going to deep dive into your story. And then at the end of the interview, you're going to share your three top tips that have helped you grow your tour operator business. So Juno Food Tours, how did this all get started, Miji? Well, it all started when I moved to Juneau. I left my adult daughter back in Utah and my friends and stuff. And I was always the one throwing the parties with food and dinner and all those things. And they would email me or call me and ask me, how do you make this? How do you make that? So I started a little food blog. And this was back in 2009. So I started this food blog and it was just to kind of get recipes in one place. And it was fun because it was just an idea to just sort of have a housing area for recipes. And then I really got into the blogging. It was called Meals with Midgey because I love me some alliteration. And what I did was I would tell a story about the recipe and why the recipe was so important to me or my family or why I made it. And 
it just kind of took off. And then our local newspaper had a weekly um, paper that went to all of Southeast Alaska. And they asked me to write a weekly column for them. And so I did that for about six years. And through that, what happened was I made a lot of connections and friends in the dining scene here. And you would always find me in the restaurants. I was writing about them, how I made this at home. It was so like Chef Nels, but not Chef Nels because he's better. But all these different things. And I made these really great friends. And I ended up working at the Visitors Bureau at Travel Juno, where I managed the volunteers and the visitor centers. And through that, I got to learn the tourism industry and the visitor industry. And it was a lot of fun. 2014, my best friend actually worked at the bureau with me and she handled all the travel writers. And she said, hey, you need to start a food tour. I'm like, I got a job, kind of like my job. She goes, no, all the writers are asking me why we don't have a food tour here. You're the foodie. You need to start the food tour. So there's no food tour whatsoever in Juno at the time. There was a few years earlier, someone tried to start one, but then she had some family issues and stuff. And so it just kind of died out. And I actually asked her a couple of times, was she going to restart it? Because if she was, I wasn't even going to go there because Juno is just not big enough for two of them. But as it was, she decided not to. So I jumped in with both feet and I quit my job on November 30th, um, 2014. And on December 1st, I opened Juno Food Tours. And on May 1st, we fed our first guest. How did that feel? So talk us through taking out, because you led that tour, I presume, yourself. I did. That first tour, I did. I was so nervous. I was really nervous. I tell you, the hardest part for me was in February. I yeah, spent all that winter putting everything together, getting the, the negotiations down, the route, all the stuff. And then February comes, I'm like, man, I'm really missing a paycheck. But we had, my husband and I had talked about it and we had worked out a a plan. And so it wasn't like we were struggling or anything, but it was snug. It was a little snug that winter. But that first day when I walked down there and picked up my group and I was fortunate, my tours got sold on the Princess Cruise Lines the very first, right out of the gate. And I picked up my group at the Princess Dock and I had seven people. And I was so thrilled. Seven people wanted to come see my town and come eat in my town, but wanted to spend two and a half hours with me and let me share my city with them. And they loved it. And I loved it. And after we started talking, it's like you're hanging out with your friends and going, hey, so I'm going to tell you where I hang out. And I'm going to show you this. And, and I'm just telling the stories I already knew. So it was very familiar, but it was euphoric. It was just one of the best feelings ever. So there's two burning questions I have for you. First of all, how did you go about building relationships with restaurants? So when you were creating, you sat down, you're designing an experience. First of all, I've never been to Alaska. It's on my list, so I haven't been to Juneau. But how did you pick which restaurants were going to hold the most appeal for visitors? And then how did you go about um, convincing them to be part of your tour? I did it a couple of ways. One of them is that because I was already the food writer, I kind of knew the restaurant scene very well. I, I kind of looked at it if I didn't know anything about Juno and somebody asked me where to go eat, where would I go? And the other thing too, wasn't necessarily the most popular restaurant or the most convenient restaurant. It was also location. But some of them weren't in the downtown area and they had to be downtown because it was a walking tour. So that was a part of the, the deciding factor. The other thing was, what tells Alaska's story? You know, there's some places that I go to that have great food, but 
are they really ingrained in the Alaskan story? And they're not. But doesn't mean I don't talk about them. We might not just go eat there. So as I was picking my route, I started out with, I think, 15 or 20. And then I started walking. And then I, I just walked every day. I walked that route. And I was like, okay, so your work, your work. And then I finally realized, oh, this is a story. I can tell this story. And I changed it up a little bit over the uh, first few years. And uh, just, you know, restaurants were coming to going, or this one didn't work out as well as that one, or this one really wanted to be on it. And I was like, your story's really good. So yeah, but it has to be the story. What's your story? A great example is a tea shop that I have on my route that I love this little tea shop. We can go to tea shops anywhere. Well, what's their story? They make their own tea from Alaskan um, indigenous plants. So you're drinking Alaska, you know, and I was like, that's a story. And, you know, and so if, if there's not a story there, I'm probably not going to go there. That's so true. Because I remember actually the last food tour I went on was in Montreal. And for those Quebecois listening to this, I might incur their wrath. But on that tour, we stopped off at an Italian place, tiny little place that served pasta with pasta sauce and we had the sauce and I was kind of like just tastes like what you get out of a jar down the supermarket I wasn't that impressed with the actual pasta sauce however I was impressed with the story of how that had been there for x amount of years and how many generations had run it and what they used you know ingredients and everything else so for me I, I, that story was more important than the actual I was like really <laughs> I remember the story uh, so that made it I didn't feel ripped off on the tour I didn't feel like well that was rubbish it was like yeah the pasta sauce wasn't great but i really appreciated that story of how immigrants came to montreal and built that place up apparently it's super popular so i don't know maybe my supermarket pasta sauce is just outstanding <laughs> i don't know so then how did you broach that conversation with the restaurateurs that you knew for instance to say hey i'm gonna run a food tour because there wasn't any other food tours in town did they take much convincing how did that look for you Actually, it went pretty well because, again, they already knew me. But when I went to them, I said, hey, so I've got this crazy idea. I want to bring people to your restaurant. I want to say how great you are, talk about your story and, and how amazing your food is. And I want to pay you for the privilege of that. So here's how much I can spend in your restaurant. What can we get for that? Nice. And I already knew what the price points were in these restaurants because I eat in all of them. So I was like, well... If we knock off a quarter or 50 cents, what can you do? And what ended up happening was the most wonderful thing is most of the restaurants created special tastings just for the tour. So then I was able to say exclusive tastings, which makes it even more exciting to be on the tour because then people are like, wow, you know, and, and we're like, yeah, you know, anybody can come to this restaurant, but only you get this. this so yeah. um, the nicest thing was when I walked in, every single person would say, so how can I help you, Niji? Not one person said no. I've never had anybody say no. I have, since the tour has grown, had people, because um, again, we had to take people off and add, you know, restaurants on and stuff. But it was because the company grew. We did more tours. Our groups got bigger and the restaurants were really tiny. And so there was some of them that it was just impeding their business to have these big groups there. People would come in and think that the restaurant was full and leave. And, you know, we're only there for 15 minutes. And so I was like, no, I want to bring you business. I don't want to impede your business. So we um, use these restaurants for private experiences or exclusive tours, or even sometimes I do dinner tours and I'll take them to these restaurants. 
What advice would you have? Because obviously you were ensconced in the community. You were a blogger. You were a writer. So you knew a lot of the restaurants. But let's say, for instance, one of our listeners wants to set up a tour, a food tour, but they don't know the restaurateurs very well. What advice would you have for a listener that is passionate about the food and the restaurants in the area and the story, but that maybe they don't have the business side of been able to go up to an owner of a business and ask them to be part of their tour? You know, I think the thing is being seen in the restaurants, build your credibility with the restaurant owner or the manager and definitely the wait staff. When they see you come in three times a week or even two or three times a month, depending on the restaurant, they know that you care about their business. And that's important to them. You need to say, I would say things like, especially if I didn't know that restaurant very well, hey, Mr. Jones, I am hearing such great things about your restaurant. I've eaten here a couple of times, but let me tell you what I do. And I would like to bring people to you and pay you for the privilege. I want to pay you for the privilege of bringing people to you. I want to honor what you do and pay you for that. Nobody turns that down. They're like, well, you know, they're like, well, what? I don't know exactly what you mean. We're here 15 minutes and make it easy. Keep everything simple. A lot of things that I have taken a very difficult path that a lot of my colleagues don't do. I don't do specialty diets. I can do gluten-free, vegetarian, and lactose intolerant. And that's it. And, and if you have a severe food allergy, then I'm assuming you will tell me. Yes. But I don't ask because I feel like you're an adult. You're going to let me know if you, know, you have an epipen, that kind of thing. Because the minute you go down that road, you're getting 15 different choices at this tiny little restaurant. And they're trying to do their lunch service. And they're not going to want to be on your tour because you're aggravating them. So keep it simple. And don't make, you know, say, this is what we serve here. I mean, I even have people now, oh, well, we don't eat seafood. I can substitute chicken maybe at a couple of places, but at Tracy's Crab Shack, that's all we have is crab bits. Would you like coleslaw? Because I can do that in a roll. And I'm very honest with them, but that's why you come on my tour. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I can say in 20 languages, I have an allergy to fish and seafood. (laughs) Because I do, and I am very careful when I see that's important to me because it's an allergy. Not yes. I don't like to eat it. Yeah, yeah. You no, know? it's it's you an, allergy. an but, allergy. I don't want to take anybody who's going to get sick. You yeah. know, you want to say, okay, how severe is it? I mean, because there are some people like if they go in Tracy's, the the shell, the sea, you know, they're allergic to shellfish, and even just the fumes can make them really sick. I need to know that. Yeah, but it's like you say, being an adult. So when I was in the Bahamas recently. January, it feels like six years ago. But what I tend to do is say, oh, I'm vegetarian. <laughs> just sort it out. But I'm expecting fish and seafood. If I come to Alaska, I'm expecting fish and seafood. So, you know, it's, it's just sort of piggyback off that. So I, I like how you approach the restaurants. Do you ever think about asking them, you know, what's their pain point? Because sales is very often, you know, you're fixing a pain point for them, you know. So would you, so because there are some cities I've heard from food tour entrepreneurs, like I just cannot get into this particular restaurant. They don't want to work with us. And I've always said, well, find out, you know, do they have a quiet time or anything like that? Is 11 o'clock quiet for them? Could you bring people? I don't know. How do you go about finding that pain point out with a restaurant, do you think? Or is that something that's just not part of your strategy? It's not. I The way I look at it, because there are a couple of restaurants that are very well-known and um, serve great food, and I don't approach them. They're way busy. They're just too busy. And me being in there is a pain in their neck, bringing 14 people in. Their wait staff are running crazy. That's not helping them. That's not serving them. That's not 
building their business, their business is crazy good. I would say if you're having a really difficult time getting into a restaurant, then the person that is the decision maker doesn't see your vision. So do it without them. Create a need for them to come to you. When they see your success, they'll start knocking on your door. Don't feel like your whole food story is wrapped around one or two of these iconic locations. If they don't want to be in it, they don't want to be in it. Move on. Always have options if something is all of a sudden closed. Always have options if, you know, someone just decides they don't want to be on the tour anymore. You want backup. Yeah. So, you know, don't build your tour around specific restaurants. Build it around the story. You know, is a unique destination because I know you're a big cruise destination. But one of the ideas I've always thought about with food tourpreneurs is I know myself, I've gone on a food tour and I've gone back to one or two of the restaurants to have a full dinner and a meal and drinks and everything else. And I've often wondered if I was running a food tour, would I send a survey out? And one of the questions would be, did you go back to eat at any of the restaurants we took you on? Because that also, I think, is really good data to go back. Like for you, for instance, maybe they're only in town for the day in the main because they're on the cruise and back again. But in other areas of the world, you know, that kind of information could really help where you could speak to that restaurant that you really, really, really want on your tour and they're not playing ball and say, well, do you realize X percentage of our guests come back and eat? Because, you know, some of them are worried about the table value and everything else. Yeah. For being in a cruise party, it's a little more difficult. Yes. Because... If they come on our first tour of the day, which is at 1030, and their, their ship is here, say, into the evening, then the likelihood of them going back to one of the restaurants is very high. We also point out places that may not um, be on the tour, but this is a great place to go eat. And they're actually texting their families, hey, we're going to meet up here after I'm done. And because half the time, half the family's on our tour and the other half is doing something else. So they have a meeting place. What's really cool is that on our tours, all our guests get the, these orange, reusable, recyclable gift bags. And in those bags are some information about the tour, some of the other restaurants, additional tastings and things like that. But after the tours, I walk around town and I see these bags everywhere. And I see them sitting on tables in nice. restaurants and I see them in the gift shops. And so they're, they're still staying around spending money in the community and supporting other businesses, which is what I want that, you know, I have anecdotal data, but I don't have concrete data. And I've learned that um, people intend to fill out the surveys, but they never do. They get moving on with, you know, vacations over, got to go back to work, things like that. And that's okay. But what really matters to me is the people in our community seeing it. They see, oh man, I see those orange bags everywhere. Such a great idea. Yay. If there's one thing (laughs) Torpers can take, yeah, from this episode is that something like that, I think is very effective. My second question for you, the burning question I have for you is how did you get to partner with the cruise lines? Because that's something I get a lot of questions about, certainly pre-COVID here at Tourpreneur. And even myself, I went on my first cruise in January this year. And obviously I did a lot of experiences and really enjoyed it. But I kept thinking to myself, wow, how did this tour get this gig? Because, you know, it's a pretty big deal. So share with us how, how you got to work with the cruise lines. Well, for me, it started out, I'm a firm believer that a successful business is built on successful relationships. And I build relationships with people all over the place. And one of the best relationships I had was one of my coworkers, Val. She worked with me at Travel Juno. She left to go work at Princess Cruise Lines. And what was really nice and convenient for Juno is Princess has an office here. 
So when she and I would get together once a month or so and have lunch. So in November of 2014, I told her, I said, hey, let's go to lunch. So we were catching up. And I said, look, this is on the down low. I haven't told anybody yet, but I'm going to quit my job and start this food tour. She leans over the table, grabs my hand. We want to sell your tour. I was like, what? She said, we've been trying to get a food tour on this ship for years. We need to sell your tour. Who better can do it than the person who writes about the food in our city? And so it was a relationship, a really good friendship. That though, that I almost didn't do it because it was information overload getting on a ship. It was, I had this grandiose idea. I was going to do this three hour tour and they're like, make it two and a half because it'll sell better. Here's your pricing. And the numbers went back and forth on pricing and they were telling, no, that's too much. And I said, well, if you want me to have good food, then you got to pay me for it. And so finally we settled on a price. And so then the best thing I did was just wait to see what they were going to sell the tour for. And when they launched it on their website, I sold my tour for the exact same amount. And at first, and they sold it for $129. I was like, holy cow, that's so much. But then I was like, well, then I need to add value. And that's where the bags came from. I started, did the gift bags with all, and inside the gift bags are $50 in coupons for downtown retailers. I have retail partners. And so it was that conversation, but it took me two years to get on in Holland America. And then from Holland America, what my team, my guides would do was go to the Shorex and go, I can't believe you're not selling our tour because we would be picking up their guests and taking their guests on our tours. And we're like, why aren't you selling, you know, Juno food tours? And the Shorex people, they would go back to their managers and go, why aren't we selling the food tour? And so then we worked at front line and then they just started telling everybody else. Wow. That's an incredible story. Yeah. So now we're on eight cruise lines. Um, they're holding out for Norwegian. That's my next one. Why, why do they say no to you? It's not that they say no. That they, It's that they have two people working their shore excursion uh, management office for like half the world, mm. for like Asia, all the West Coast, and then like I think Australia, all of this, you know, that area. And so it's, I think it's just a, getting in the queue. And, uh, and then I was actually starting real good conversations and then COVID hit and they started doing uh, furloughs and stuff. And I was like, I'm not going to bother you. Yeah, yeah. But what's really going to work out nice is they did buy a piece of land here just recently. I don't know if you read about it, it was an astronomical amount of money and they're building their own dock. Right. So, and so I got to meet one of the executive directors, leader dudes at um, Norwegian and he said he put in a good word for me. Even then I'll just go down and start working their, their shore act people I'm like, Hey, you know, we're taking your people in our tours. We could book them through you. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> if I understand this correctly. So the, the cruise line, the first one put your tour price out at one twenty nine. What was your standard rate at the time? I didn't have a rate yet. I didn't set it until I knew what they were going to do. I got you. And then I, I matched it. I've never had a problem. Um, and this would have been my sixth season. I've never raised it either. I maintain that rate because it's a fair rate. Seafood here is expensive. Food here is expensive. And so I try to give people, you know, a big bang for their buck. I agree with you. When I booked my tours, I, <laughs> considering I've worked for an OTA for, you know, in the OTA world for 20 years, I didn't even really compare and contrast. I just thought, you know what, for me, and a lot of people listening to the show are going to laugh at this. 
I love the fact I could book it with a celebrity. They organized everything. That boat was not going to leave without me because they had the agreement with it. Oh, and it was my first ever cruise. So I didn't really know how it all worked. So I'm like, yeah, I don't want to, you know, get lost somewhere or not get picked up. So, you know, there was the security factor, but of course I looked looked at the pricing, but I just thought, oh yeah, there's a markup on this. Of course there is, but ultimately it's saving me a headache and it goes to that pain point again, isn't it? Like I could have researched it all myself, spent hours, but they've already done it for me. And, you know, it, it was fantastic experiences. And the thing about the cruise lines is that they generally vet the businesses pretty tightly. I mean, we have to earn our stripes to get on those ships. The other thing too is that when you're talking about pricing and things like that, they don't pay me $129. But, you know, I always look at commissions as an investment. It's a marketing investment. So when they take their their markup or commission, I make up the difference in volume. You know, my first year, if I was just relying solely on myself, I might have fed 50 customers, 50 guests. I did 580 because it was sold on a cruise line. Yes. You know, I count direct bookings versus cruise ship bookings. My direct bookings, my margin's bigger, but my cruise ship bookings, I probably do four to one. And so it's, yeah, it's a significant difference and it's volume. So when you, if you are looking at pricing for a cruise line, you know, cover your net, cover, you know, all your expenses, everything you can think of plus 20%, always add 20%. You don't want to give up your margin. And so when I price it, it's not just the food, it's the guide, it's the insurance, it's the bags, it's all the swag, it's everything plus 20% because you're not always going to be the one operating your tours. So make sure that you're paying yourself. How do you feel about, and I know this was a conversation on our Facebook group recently where there is a lot of talk right now about sustainability within travel and a lot of people who are arguing as we're coming through COVID, we now have this opportunity to be more green in our travel, more sustainability. And I get that. Like, who doesn't want to fight against what's happening with the environment? My other side of me is like, yeah, but we're also all trying to clothe our kids and put food on the table here and be sustainable. And it's very, very difficult. And I, I read a lot of people who are very anti the cruise industry. And it's usually people who don't live or have a tour business in a port. Yes. And even though, and full disclosure, we had a handful of those people here, I respect them and honor their opinion, but I didn't earn my living working for the state. I decided to create jobs and I decided to build my economy. And when you say my job and what my career is, career choices are, are not valuable, that's pretty hurtful and it's pretty narrow minded. This year, Juno really got its comeuppance when no ships came. We had a zero cruise ship summer, and we're looking at almost $300 million in money not coming into our town. We're um, looking at, I think it's between, and I'm ballparking this, 15 to $18 million just in sales tax revenue going into the city coffers. So now all those naysayers, their property taxes are going up. And because the city has to make money somehow and they're raising all the property taxes and things like that. And so, you know, it's like that industry doesn't just make money for me. It makes money for every single person who lives here, every single person. And an average cruiser will spend almost $200 in Juno. So if we had 1.3 million people, I mean, 
that's a that's a lot of money flowing into the community in five months. I, I can well believe it because on some of the tours I went on in the Caribbean, I was buying all sorts, like I'm, I'm the marketeer's dream. I was buying all the tea from the Bahamas and hot sauces and coming back with bags oh, yeah. of stuff because you're on holiday and you exactly. do it. Exactly. Yeah, I do the same thing. Uh, yeah, it's so funny. And I think too, you know, speaking about sustainability, what a lot of people don't know, and I think sometimes they just don't want to know because people, we're humans and we like to dig our heels in is the um, cruise industry actually is doing a lot towards sustainability. Many of the cruise lines now have these scrubbers that are inside the smokestacks, which, and I'm not going into all the technology because I don't know it. And I just know what I've heard anecdotally, but that actually dissipates the carbon dioxide and all monoxide, whatever it is, you know, it, it cleans it out. And so a lot of it is just steam, but you know, steam is smoke. And so it's, a little confusing but then I also look at Royal Caribbean and Norwegian and Carnival Cruise Lines who just have well before COVID hit were like we're doing away with straws and the reason that they did away with straws is because and I went on a Panama Canal cruise the local tour guide we had in Panama he told us one of the biggest problems they had were plastic straws because they fly overboard and then they wash up on the shores you know things like that and so yeah, it's a small thing, but it does make a big difference. It really does. And you have to start somewhere. Yeah, you do. And to be honest with you, like I see both sides and I think had I not gone on that cruise in January, I probably would be a little bit, well, I'd be a lot more on the sustainability side of things. But I vividly remember, you know, uh, uh, coming off the cruise at Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic and how much those businesses were really reliant on the passengers on that cruise ship. And, you know, it's like anything else. This is why we love travel. It broadens the mind and you can change your, your previously held outlook by seeing something for yourself. And it really struck me how important that industry is for the ports and the surrounding areas as well, especially, you know, in areas like Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, for instance. Yeah. I mean, there was, when we were in Panama, the, the excursion we did was like a canoe excursion. And then we went to this little island. We met an indigenous fan or group of people there a tribe, I think. And anyway, they told us their story and their story was where they were located on this um, island had been taken over by the government. And the government said, you can either leave or you can figure out a, a way to adapt to us owning this land now. And so they all got together and they said, we decided to adapt because we didn't want to leave our homes. And they said, but the best way for us to adapt was to get into the visitor industry and into tourism and so they created an experience to share their culture and it was one of the coolest things i ever did yeah really cool it was i i will never forget it and it, it was raining buckets when we were in those canoes and i didn't care we were covered in mud walking through the jungles and <laughs> i didn't care it was the coolest experience and we got to help that community stay alive and their children stay there and them have, and they sold, they had like a, a little pavilion and they sold all their handmade crafts and things. And so I bought a bunch of stuff for souvenirs for my friends and myself. I have a little basket, a handwoven basket in my office. And, you know, it was just the neatest thing. Are you looking for reservation software? I've got great news. 
This month, Checkfront is offering an exclusive free 90-day trial for Torpreneurs. That's so much time to set up a high-converting booking flow on your website and explore everything you can do in the back end to support your recovery, from marketing tools to real-time reporting. So if you've wanted to try Checkfront, now is the time. Go to checkfront.com forward slash tourpreneur to claim your free 90-day trial. Changing tracks a little bit. So in terms of, so you've got your business from the cruise industry, pre-COVID, of course. How are you going about getting direct bookings? And were you getting any bookings from locals who also wanted to come on your tours? I don't get a lot of locals. Um, the locals are generally, oh, we eat in all those restaurants kind of thing. Juno's really small. It's only 32,000 people. It's not like I have a big market that I can really go after locally. What I do get, though, are locals who have visiting friends and family, and they want to buy a, a tour for their friend, friends and family. So that's really nice. I do get that. I get a lot of my direct bookings from travel agents. I work travel agents book cruises and travel agents book experiences. Travel agents get a commission from me and they don't get it if they book an experience through the ship. So we also monitor the ship's arrivals and departures. And so we never have had anybody miss a ship. And so that's one of the things that for my direct bookings, those relationships are everything to me. And each year it gets bigger and better. So that's a world that for a lot of tour operators is something brand new, the world of travel agents. How did you go about learning how that all worked when you started out? Well, having worked at the Visitors Bureau really helped because then I kind of knew a little bit of the nuance. But I also, when I booked my cruises, I used a travel agent. So I just reached out to a travel agent and said, hey, this is what I'm doing. If you send people up to Alaska, I'll give you a commission. And then they started sending a few. And then you, you make sales sound so easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just call them up. And they said, yeah, no, I, call, I call up people I know to start with. So let me just say, yeah, but yeah. I do also, you know, you know, you build your brand, build your name. You are the person to talk to about food in your community. People want to talk to you. Yeah. So then what I did was I joined this year. I joined NTA, which is the National Tour Association. They have a great travel um, agency network, but we have these in-destination called receptors. And what they do is put group tours together where say a family's coming for a week and they put the whole week together for them. And then they'll call me for the Juno part. They're usually private experiences. And so that works out really good. So it's building those relationships and doing things like this, talking to tourpreneur and getting in the media. And, you know, I work the press. I love travel writers. And so even when I launched my subscription boxes, I reached out to my travel writer friends and then I started getting the press from that. So it's building those relationships with travel agents. You can go online and find all the travel agents that are doing cruises and things like that. They're they're all out there. It's a little legwork. Hire your high school kid to do some data entry and build you a mailing list and send an email and introduce yourself. This is what I do. And I want to help you you're solving their problem. Yeah, and we should probably do a, a should have a special episode on receptives and, and travel agent world because you know most of us think yeah we have a website we have OTA and, and that's it and, and don't look at these other channels that are out there to to work with. Yeah, yeah, receptives are great. Yeah, 
What do you think is the best thing that's happened to you since you started? Oh, wow. Okay, so this was the best. Aside from starting Global Tours Connect, this was the best. So having been in the press a lot in all these different things, in October, two years ago, got an email from this woman, Ginger, at Nat Geo, and she said that they're doing a new show, and their chef was looking for new destinations, and Alaska was one of them, and she wanted to talk to me. So we set up a call. She was in London, and we set up a call, and she said, yeah, so we're doing a show, We're in, and she kept referring to the chef, and she wouldn't say the chef's name, and I was like, okay, cool. And then I started looking at the email, you know, where it's at, and it was at Ramsey Studios. And I was like, shut up. Gordon Ramsey wants to come to Alaska. Okay. So then I had her on speakerphone, and my husband was sitting next to me, and I'm just like, beep. And I said, um, so I just have to ask you, why did you call me? Why did you contact me? And they said that they Googled food in Alaska and all roads pointed to me and to Juno. And they knew that I'd be the one to help them. And so through that and conversations and things going back and forth, Gordon Ramsay came to Juno in February of last year and filmed his um, show Uncharted with our one of my favorite chefs, Chef Lionel Yupada. And I got to be on the show and I wow. got to have... Yes, my husband and I were there, and Gordon Ramsay and Chef Lionel cooked a l- huge lunch for us. And then we were told to critique Gordon Ramsay's cooking. And I was like, <laughs> I'm not going there. <laughs> He's extraordinarily charming, very funny, and really nice man. Like what you see on those other shows, but. He loved Juno, and I actually got to talk to him several times on the phone and stuff. And he's, he, it was just one of the highlights of my life. I was like, yeah, that was, put a pin in me. I'm done. That was so cool. That's huge. Yeah. That That's was, huge. And the thing that was the coolest part was that it was not about me. It was about my community. Yeah. It was that Juno got the respect yeah. of an international known chef. Yeah. And, you know, a Michelin star chef came to our town because he heard the food was so great. Yeah. And I just, that was just like, that's what I do. That's why I do what I do. Absolutely. And that, that's why I love what I do. And were you able to put on your website as seen on the such and such show or? I didn't do that because this, the tour is not on the show or anything like that. What I did do, he did allow all of us to get photos with him. He Again, he was extraordinarily gracious. So that photo was out there. I mean, I put it out there. And But what's really funny is, so it's been about, a year and a half since it aired and every once in a while someone will tag me in the photo and say i just saw you on uncharted and i was like yeah yeah that's me that's my husband wow. on the boat yeah i have to look <laughs> yeah. that up now i've never watched it i have to say i've never watched that one so i'm gonna have to look that one up i i kept trying to get them to come in april or may when it wasn't so cold but their filming schedule was we have to come in february yeah so it turned out it was 12 degrees it was so cold and it was a beautiful snowy sunny day i mean we had pristine snow it was nice and sunny and chef uh, ramsey and lionel were outside cooking and they made like little outside stoves where they were cooking all this food it was incredible nice really cool fantastic really cool great let me ask you In terms of distribution, you just mentioned Global Tours Connect, which we featured on a previous episode of Tourpreneur. What does your distribution mix look like in terms of what OTAs are you working with for Juno Food Tours right now? 
I don't work with like the big major OTAs because they, well, personally, I just don't like all the shenanigans that TripAdvisor is doing. And I was with Expedia like my first year and I never got a single booking. And I was just like, this isn't worth the heartburn. But I work with what they call resellers that specialize in short excursions, like short trips. And there are some that specialize in Alaska, like Alaska excursions and things like that. I'll work with them. But really, I, and then Global Tours Connect, my tours obviously are sold on that because I'm owner. But that one, we actually changed it, our business model to be very specific. It's a boutique marketplace for food, culture, and history tours. So we're really narrowing that focus. And so uh, that really does, even if I didn't own it, that would be where I would go. And then uh, really it's the receptors and travel agents. But as far as the big OTAs, I'm just not down with that. I'm not down with how they, you know, I see, especially on your Facebook group, all of the upset and the changes that, wow, man, my commission jumped and they didn't even tell me and all these different things. And so my advice to you is that if you are, because uh, I know I have a lot of friends that get great bookings off a of TripAdvisor. If you are concerned about that they charge more than what you charge on your website, raise your price, match it. Because I can tell you this, this is, if I leave you with anything, I can tell you this, if Mary Jones is looking on TripAdvisor to buy a tour, she is not going to go, oh, wait, I could go to that website and get it cheaper. She's like, I need to get back to work. Click. Yeah. She's buying the tour. Yeah. Don't, you know, don't devalue what you do. Yeah. And I think what's also important, because there is a lot of noise online and you've got to do your own due diligence is I have worked in this side, you know, I've, I worked at Get Your Guide for several years and for, for many tour operators, they do exceedingly well with an OTA, but you know, each OTA is different products work better with each one. You know, now I don't know what the post COVID world is going to look like. You know, most OTAs, I mean, I've just reading about booking.com closing the whole of their Seattle operation. That's 300 jobs gone. So I don't know how many account managers are going to be out there, oh, but you know, it's, it really is. And there's going to be a, a lot of change. And that could mean, you know, because one of the complaints I hear a lot about is, oh, I can never get hold of my account manager or I can't get anybody to help me. And, you know, if there are going to be layoffs, that is a worry. But then I would also say to people that, you know, we've just released an episode actually with Carly Stelfox Lawyer, who's, uh, she's actually worked in Alaska. I'm surprised if she calls you after this, but she's the <laughs> regional manager for Get Your Guide and sharing what works well for Get Your Guide. And we interviewed a tour operator who's done really well getting international bookings. So, you know, for certain operators, for certain products, I think that they do very well in certain destinations. But you're also you moving from OTAs to booking platforms. You're a huge fan of Fair Harbor, aren't you? I am. Actually, I love Fair Harbor. My account manager, Danny, is the bomb. I love him. Hi, Danny. So he's actually one of those guys that I'm not tech savvy. That's not my expertise. And so I know that I have a lot of colleagues like, oh, you can just go in and you can do that. I'm like, but Danny will do it. <laughs> and all it is an email to Danny. Hey, Danny, I would like to change this. Can you set that up for me? And, and, or I can email their support or call their support and it's done very quickly. So their customer service is stellar. And yeah. that really made a big difference to me. And the other reason I switched is that my previous booking platform, they, and I really being a small company, especially working on cruise ships. So full disclosure, before I, this last year, I didn't get, I didn't have that direct relationship with the ships. 
I went through a third party to manage it. I made the contracts, but then I had a third party manage it because they knew how and yeah. I was learning it. So, but what would happen is the ships would pay them and then they wouldn't, they would take forever to pay me. So I was like, okay, so that's not going to work for me. And then when my booking engine was taking forever to pay me too, if I've got a bunch of bookings on a Saturday, I wouldn't get paid until like 10 to 12 days later. And my husband was with Fair Harbor and money's in the bank 20, you know, 48 hours later. He has later. a fishing, he has right. a fishing business, I, right? Sorry. He does. He has sport right. fishing and whale watching. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So then I, I emailed my previous company and I said, Hey, if Fair Harbor can do it and what is it? Square can do it. Pay me in 48 hours. You can't. I want to know why. Oh, this is the industry standard. I'm going to say no. No, it's not. I want to get paid. So I ended up, I was just like, you know what? That, that's just the last straw. So I switched and I did it during um, the fall, which is generally my down season. And I've never regretted it. Not one time. It was very swift and easy. They built my website. They, like I said, customer service has been stellar and I'm very happy, very happy. Well, I think you've just earned Danny a pay rise. You've just told the world. <laughs> he's he's just so great. He's, you know, he always returns my calls or emails me back and stuff. And yeah, he's just so great to work with. And I think that is what makes a big difference with any high tech company is that customer service. Because when we have problems, they are urgent. We don't call you when it's like, hey, could you get around? And we're like, I'm going to lose a booking if this doesn't get straightened out right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at moving web servers and all that because every time I need to speak to GoDaddy, I'm an hour on the phone before I get to speak oh, to yeah. anybody, you know, and it's that kind yeah. of thing. It's like, I know we're all busy, but you want someone to, to respond quickly. I wanted to ask you about, so you started out leading the tours yourself and then you mentioned that you're hiring tour guides. What advice do you have for tourpreneurs when it comes to hiring tour guides? Oh my gosh. So I hired tour guides my very first season right. Um, right out of the gate because we were sold on princess and Wednesdays we had three ships in. And so I couldn't do all three departures. So I, at first I just hired people I knew that I thought would be really good. I hired, this is what I did, which was really smart. I actually had uh, my previous job. I managed volunteers right. who shared information in the visitor centers. So I hired some of them. And I said, I don't want to take you away from your volunteer job. We'll work around it. And so I give people the option of what days they can work and things like that. And I've had some of mine for four years. One of the, the biggest mistakes that I, I made was just sort of not really vetting very well. Mm -hmm. You know, really vet. And don't ask the stupid questions of like, where do you think you're going to be in five years? What are some of your tricks and tips then when you come to vetting? What, kind of, what are your favorite questions? One of my favorite questions is I ask them, so you pick your group up, you get to Tracy's King Crab Shack, which is the first stop, and Mrs. Jones tells you she's um, gluten-free. And so what do you do? The, if they look like they just got hit by a car and they're like, oh my gosh, ah, then I get a little worried. But yeah. generally what they'll do is say, the best question is, I'm assuming you already told me what to say, that you trained me. So yes, you know I'm going to prepare you. And then the second one is, I'll call you and tell you and let you know. That's a good response too. Or the third one is, I will go and ask the management, hey, I've got a gluten-free person. What can we do to substitute? Solve the problem. And so that's what I love. And so yeah. are they problem solvers? Do they look completely panic-stricken? 
by a question, then how good are they going to be solving a problem when you're not there? You know, solve the problem. So that's a big thing. And the other one is I don't tell them ahead of time. I tell them, I ask them in an interview, tell me a joke or a funny story. And generally they're like, oh my gosh, I'm completely caught off guard. I said, I know, I'll wait. It's okay. We've got time. And I just wait. And now I see the wheels are turning. Are they going to tell me an off-color joke, which um, generally I probably like, but not in an interview? Or are they going to tell me a really funny story? And I really like it if they tell me a funny story about something that's happened to them. And that's how I know you can tell me a story. And if you can tell me a story completely off the cuff, imagine what you could do when I give you the story to tell. Yes. And then I, I hire people in the interview. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I love that. Yeah. Sometimes I'll interview someone just out of courtesy. I already know from their email that I'm going to hire them. What is it yeah, about their email they, that you meet? So this, oh my gosh, her name's uh, Terry. And Terry actually worked for me for two years and this would have been her third year. And she, her email was so funny. And she said, I read your request looking for people. I do this. And I just, and it was so funny the way she wrote it. I was like, I want to meet her. I want to have coffee with her. She is so funny. And so then when she came in and then we started talking, I said, okay, so just so you know, you had the job before you even got here. I just wanted to see you really get to know you. And I said, you don't have to accept right now. I want you to go home, talk to your husband, ponder it and give me a call. And so she, like an hour later, yes. And so it worked out really well. And I ended up last year, she was my operations manager. I hired her to be my operations manager. No, some very good advice there. That's also a big question we get here about hiring. It's one of the trickiest things because I don't think you can learn that out of a book. It's experience, it's gut instinct and having, like you say, you know, demonstrating. Yeah. Yeah. Put them at ease and then just say, tell me a joke or a funny story and lean towards the story. You want to know, can they tell you a story? Are they entertaining? So my tours, I, we don't educate, we entertain, you know, people come there, they're on vacation. They want to have a good time. It is not a time to fill their head with lots of heavy facts. They're, they don't care. They're not going to retain it. I'm not going to change their lives in any significant way. I'm going to let them have a good time while they're on vacation. We entertain. So make it fun for them. And if you can't make it fun for me, you sure can't make it fun for my guests because I laugh at almost everything. So I want to ask you about these troubling times we're in with COVID. So there's no cruise ships coming into Juneau. How are you surviving right now? Um, It's it's tough. Fortunately, I was able to get some of the EIDL, and that helped. I did do, in August, five private tours, but then the state changed the protocols for coming in, traveler, inbound travelers. So, so I just, it was just getting stressful for everybody. And so it's like, you know, what, I don't even want to deal with this anymore. Um, I have picked up a couple of odd jobs. I'm spending a lot of my time working on Global Tours Connect and my boxes. The boxes have been the big thing. Those have taken off really well. So that's been great. And then um, to be honest, I'm going to get a winter job. I'm going to have to get a job over the winter that will help pay my bills because we just bought our our condo last year and it took us 10 years to be able to afford a condo. So we're, I'm just not giving it up. And my biggest concern really is for my husband because my overhead is extraordinarily low, but his is, you know, we have four boats. We just bought the fourth one in April. 
right at the beginning of April. And then it's like, ah, all the crazy happened. So we're being careful with our funds. He still did charters and he, we were very fortunate. He got a, a yacht trip where he tendered for a yacht for most of July. And that helped out a lot. And he also is a contractor. So he's doing handyman and contractor work, mm-hmm. construction work and stuff. So he's a jack of all trades, uh, which is very helpful right now. But yeah, we're, we'll muddle through. But it's, you know, when both of you are in the industry, it's devastating. Really is. It's really and hard. I'm not as uh, depressed as I was four months ago. Do you know what? I'm hearing that. And our happy hour the other night on Torpreneur, which was, was fantastic. Oh gosh, that I mean, was so fun. It really was. I was a bit nervous how it would go just because of how everything is going. And I didn't want it to be a pity party because I've had enough of them over the last six months. But, you know, I'm always motivated with tour operators. We're such an optimistic but realistic bunch. It's not like we have this blind optimism and it's going to be okay next week. We know know it's the long haul, but, you know, we kind of almost have this gallows humor about it as well. And and that definitely came out in the happy hour. And, you know, I'm hearing from lots of operators either some of them have spouses who work and they can pay the bills that way and but the vast majority of our listeners who are small to medium-sized you know i have some that are stacking shelves in the supermarket to pay the bills right now but they don't want to give up that dream of running their tours whenever it's safe to do so they're not prepared to give that up and of course there are some you know carrie at atlanta movie tours i was sad to read that you know she's closed the doors on her business but i understand it as well because it is impossible for any of us to plan long term right now. Britain just brought in the rule of six. So you can imagine, you know, now you have to increase your prices because your capacity is lowered and are people going to pay that? You know, how do you plan for this? Well, and the other thing, too, is that, you know, these companies that have really high overhead, like boats and buses yeah. and helicopters and things, they're the ones that are really at risk. The small entrepreneur like me, we can go get a job and we'll come back. You know, we'll just close doors and we'll come back. It's the ones who have a lot of, of hard goods that they still need to make all those payments on. Those are the ones that the money was going to run out, you know, and that's, I don't, you know, when Carrie closed, I was not surprised. I'm like, look at the buses. The buses are so expensive yeah. and, you know, not just to maintain, but you've got the bus payment. I'm assuming that she has not paid all her buses off. But you have the payments on the buses. Plus, even when they're in storage, you have to insure them. And insuring anything is still expensive. So, I mean, Grant, he pays, you know, thousands of dollars every winter just to store the boat. Yeah. So it's, you know, you're paying for stuff you're not earning on. And it's very difficult. And I feel for them. I also think that for the smaller entrepreneur, what's going to happen is that the people that got into it, um, especially in food tourism, the people that got into this industry who were just hobbyists, oh, I just love to eat. I didn't want to take people around my town and show them how, you know, where I like to eat. And there's, I mean, nothing wrong with that, but they're not necessarily really entrepreneurs, yeah. like really in it to win it. They're probably going to give it up. They're probably, you know what, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't fun. This isn't rewarding. And it's not right now. But the entrepreneur is like, okay, so now what? Okay, so now I'll just do private tours. Or okay, I'm going to do a box. Or okay, I'm going to go stock shelves so that I can keep making my boat payments because I will come back. This isn't the normal life. 
that's an entrepreneur. And Yeah, and that's what I hear. And I think in our industry, the vast majority of us have a passion for what we are showing in our cities and we want to get back to that. It's not, you know, the vast majority of us are not making millions of dollars and a huge empire. We're, we're just scraping by, let's be honest, you know, but we love what we do. Well, that's what gets us out of bed. You're going to take a tour out. You you always love seeing the smiles on people's faces when they get off that boat and they experience Juno for the first time. And that's why we do what we do. So I, I am I'm hearing exactly. that as well. I wanted to end on a couple of positives. I asked you before you come on the show to share three topics of learnings about how you grew your business. And the first one you shared was to stay relevant. What did you mean by that exactly? So even if you're not operating your tour, keep your voice out there. Stay relevant in your community. Even though I'm not operating tours, I still go and see my restaurants. And how you doing? You know, I get takeout if I can, or I even just write a column, write a blog about it. You know, stay relevant in that conversation in your community. I'm the president of our downtown business association. So everybody knows my name because they get all the emails from that. Mm. But I'm staying relevant in my community. Don't let your voice go quiet. You don't have to be out there hustling for tours, but you can be just out there. The other thing too, stay relevant in our community, in the tourpreneur community. Let people know you're still around. Ask questions. Even if you didn't get to actually run your first tour because you were just starting up, this is the best time ever to get your voice out there. Become the expert. The best thing that ever happened to me was I had a boss many years ago tell me, it's not what you know. It's not who you know, it's who knows you. Be that person. Be the person that that they want to know you because you're the expert and that's how you stay relevant. Gordon Ramsay called me, well, people did. (laughs) They called me because I made myself relevant to the food story of Alaska. And and I'm going to stay in business because of that. Your second learning was to, or your bit of advice was to get involved in your community. We've already heard that you're you're a manager of the Downtown Association. What else are you doing in your community right now? So one of the easiest things for me personally to sink into is binge watching Netflix. So I have watched so many Netflix. Now I'm into the um, shows from Europe with the subtitles, which actually I'm loving. But staying active in your community is good for your soul. It's good for your spirit. Volunteer somewhere. Help out at the food bank. Whatever your favorite thing to do is. You know, what's in your community that you can do that will make a difference? The, it's a proven fact that volunteering and giving back is good, releases endorphins. Yeah. It helps you feel better. It gives you a sense of community and a sense of community pride. What can you do in your community to just feel good about it? Feel good about yourself. And it could be something super simple as maybe if this is your thing and you love kids and your neighbor is a single mom, she has to go back to work and she's freaking out about childcare. Can you help out a couple hours? Can you take her five-year-old off their hands for a little bit? Reach out and help people because when you do that, you're actually helping yourself as well. Well, I also love seeing the photos of you on the campaign trail for a local politician and we try not to do politics on the show. No, but what I liked about that was, (laughs) this is one of my pet (laughs) gripes here, but you know, people think liking a politician's 
status is campaigning these days and it's not you know i i i volunteered locally here and i had to put the yard signs together and that's such a boring horrible job but you never think that someone has to put these signs together and whatever and i was really pleased when i saw you doing that didn't know the politician didn't know the party didn't care to be honest with you but just to see you actually doing something like that i i liked yeah getting involved i mean you know it's really not about you know drawing a hard line or anything it's like this person, Kenny, who's running for our city assembly, I know him very well, and I like him a lot. I believe in what he does, and I believe he's going to be a great person to have on our city assembly. So I was like, yeah, I'll help out. Yeah. yeah. First time ever working on anything like that, and it's been an eye-opener. Well, <laughs> and we kind of have a big election coming up in a couple of months. So for those of you who aren't leading tours and you have time on your hands, I'm sure your local candidates would appreciate it. What was your number three, your third topic that you wanted to share with us in terms of growing your business? Don't be afraid to redefine your business to meet a new market need. Yes. Don't be afraid to redefine what you do. This is especially key with food tourism. You know, many of us have gone to these boxes or other things. I actually made mine its annual subscription where you can buy just one or you buy the whole year, Mm -hmm. but don't be afraid to say, this is how I'm going to run my business now. What do you got to do to stay in business? Don't be afraid to say, you know what? I'm only doing private tours. That's that because that's what's best, not only for my team, but for my community sense of comfort and my guests. You know, the guests may not care, but your community might care. So you want to make sure, especially if you're in a small town like I am, what's the vibe? But don't be afraid to redefine what you do because you're going to find that you can do so much. There's so many opportunities there. One of the things that I took on last year was actually um, working with travel agents, reaching out to them and going, do you have people coming up to Juno who want to do multiple things? Let me package that up for you. And then you only have to talk to one person instead of calling 12. And I do that now. I package experiences for travel agents to resell. So don't be afraid to redefine what you do. I'm not just a food tour operator. I'm a tourpreneur. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a business person. Well, Minji, thank you for giving us an hour of your time today. I know you're very busy with all these things that are going on up there (laughs) in Alaska. So we appreciate hearing your story. Love your job title, Chief Eating Officer. Uh, That's what I (laughs) want to be when I grow up. Where can people find you online? Uh, They can find me at Midgi, M-I-D-G-I, at junofoodtours.com, or the website is junofoodtours.com. Marvelous. Well, again, thank you very much for coming on the show today. And uh, if you can do me a favor, if you enjoyed today's show, leave us a rating, a review, smash that subscribe button on YouTube. Apparently that's what you have to do. And uh, I'm learning that as well, talking about learning new skills, right? So the whole YouTube thing. But no, seriously, really appreciate you. And also thank you for your contributions on the Facebook the Torpreneur Facebook oh, group. You. I always enjoy reading your your comments and you sharing your wisdom. And that's the wonderful thing about community that we're all helping each other out on there. Oh, thank you for your community. I have learned so much just following it. And I really appreciate the opportunity to share what I'm doing and to share Juno with you and with anybody who's interested. Um, I hope y'all can come see me. I can't wait to get year. up there. I can't wait. I'm on 34. I can't wait to have you. I'm on 34 states. I need to check that. I think it's 34. <gasps> so, you know, Alaska is coming for sure. Yay! Oh, cool. Well, you're going to love it. Marvelous. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Torpreneur podcast. Be sure to visit torpreneur.com to join the conversation and access the show notes, including links to the resources mentioned on today's episode. This is Torpreneur.